Our sermon this morning is coming from the second chapter of Luke, and we were going to read. We were going to read to the first forty verses, but Dean has already read through the first twenty. So I'm going to pick up in verse twenty-one and read through uh, verses twenty-one through forty. And remember, we read through the manger scene, nativity, and the shepherds, the angels appearing to the shepherds. And so we pick up here in verse twenty-one. Hear the word of God. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. In other words, the firstborn of every family was dedicated to God in the temple as holy. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you want to know where that, the idea of turtle doves came from, it comes from scripture. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... He took up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law, of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Pray with me now. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, we pray, who first inspired these words of Scripture, Shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and the living of that radiant truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, the Christmas story is meant to reveal to us the very heart of God. What matters to Him, what He values, what He sees as truly important. So in the Christmas story, there are things that God wishes for us to see. And upon seeing these things, meditate upon them and contemplate them. After all, the writers of Scripture were not trying to prop up a holiday, but simply tell the story of God's faithfulness to his people, which is powerful and profound, but not always exciting in the way that our culture and our world tells us we should be excited, like at a baseball game or at a concert. It's exciting, but not in the way that the world says we should be excited. And sometimes those two emotions, those ideas, conflict. We think we should feel excitement about Christmas. We see a sense of excitement that the world has. And we think, should I feel that kind of excitement? Should I be caught up and enraptured in an overwhelming ecstasy? Or are we meant to look upon the scenes of Christmas with its manger and its nativity and contemplate and meditate the things that God values? Well, I want us to see this morning as we look briefly, and my sermon's going to be short this morning, but I just want us to briefly and quickly look at things that God wishes for us. Our sermon topic this morning is God's wish list. What does God wish for us this Christmas season to know? Number one, he wants us to realize that he works in and through humble means. He wants us to recognize also that he's present in obscure events. And he wants us to know, finally, that we never wait in vain. So the first thing, God wants us to realize that he works in and through humble means. In verses 1 through 7, Dean read earlier uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. In verse 7 it says, And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room or no place for them in the inn. The simplicity of the nativity story is proof, in my opinion, as someone who studies the word of God for a living, the nativity story is proof that the gospel of Jesus Christ is from God and not man. And the reason for that is because we would never have thought up the nativity story. If we were trying to invent a story about God coming into the world, it wouldn't look like this. It would look like great fanfare and fame. It would be big. It would be ostentatious. It wouldn't look like this. God subjecting himself to demeaning and humble circumstances. No, he would have this grand entrance into the world that everyone would marvel at. But that's not what we have. In stark contrast to, you know, the glitz of Christmas and the marketing games that we see in the world and often in the church, this passage, the nativity story, draws us to the humility and poverty of the Christmas story. God doesn't enter our world donning bells and whistles. Instead, 
He waits for our eyes to adjust to the dim lights emanating from the manger to come to see and to truly celebrate. There's this great story from um, the third installment of the Indiana Jones trilogy, The Last Crusade. At the very end of the movie, Indiana Jones is in a room with a knight. He must be like a knight templar, and he's guarding the Holy Grail, which is, presumed, which is allegedly the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. And the villain is in the room with the knight, and so is Indiana Jones, and he has to choose from a table of cups which one Christ drank from. And if he picks the right cup, he fills it with water in this little pitcher, and if he drinks it, he has eternal life, but if it's the wrong cup, the consequences are death. And he looks at all the cups. This is the villain now, the bad guy. I don't know his name. And he looks and he sees this golden chalice. It's this beautiful gold cup. It's ornate. It's opulent. It has stones. It has gems. And he thinks, this is surely the Holy Grail, the cup that our Lord and Savior drank from at the Last Supper. And he grabs the cup and he dips it in the water and he drinks. And, well, you can imagine what happens. It's the wrong choice. And, you know, he disintegrates into dust And Indy's turn, he goes up, and there's still dozens and dozens of cups. And some are still all very ornate. And he looks at the table, and he sees the dullest, meanest, humblest cup. It's dirty. It's not made of any fine metal or gold. Looked like it might be made of tin or wood. And he says, that's the cup of a carpenter. And of course, it's the right choice. And when we see it, as you're watching it, it's intuitive, right? We think in that moment, of course, Jesus came humbly to our world and works in and through humble means. And then after the movie ends, well, we go right back to looking for Jesus in the golden chalice. The lesson we're meant to learn, we immediately forget the movie The minute the movie ends, we go right back to looking for golden chalices. The first point is God wants us to realize that he works in and through humble means, through things that are ordinary and often impressive, unimpressive. God works through humble means. Secondly, God wants us to recognize that he's present in obscure events. Verses 8 through 20, Dean read through the story of the shepherds. In verse 8, it says, In the same region where there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were afraid. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I've always marveled at the fact that the most significant event in human history the world slept right through. China and Spain and Africa and certainly the Americas, they just slept right through the most significant event in all of human history. And we may think that's a tragedy, but from God's perspective, it was exactly the way he wanted it. And what's amazing about this is God could have announced 
His entrance into the world, as I mentioned before, with great fanfare, he could have lit up the night sky across the globe. Back then, there wasn't all the light interference from big cities and skyscrapers. He could have lit up the night sky, proving once for all that he exists. But he didn't. Not with loud and thunderous you know, peals of thunder and voices cracking through the sky. Instead, he reveals himself in obscurity. God reveals himself in obscurity to men who, as one theologian, so he reveals himself to the shepherds, and one theologian says he reveals himself to men who didn't have a reputation to protect or an ax to grind or a ladder to climb. Men who didn't know enough to tell God that angels don't sing to sheep and that messiahs aren't found wrapped in rags and sleeping in a feeding trough. The question we might want to ask, seeing all of this, is, but why? Why did he do what he did? Why did he do it that way? In obscurity, to peasant shepherds out in the field. And the answer is that it has something to do with the mystery of God's own character. God refuses to be put in a box. It's a cliche that he works in mysterious ways, but he does. God is a mystery. It's hard to figure God out. You can study scripture your whole life, talk about God with people for years, and still not figure him out. And we find ourselves often, especially this time of year, looking for God, sometimes in the wrong places, because we want him to make sense for us. And sometimes God doesn't always make sense. God is true and righteous and holy and pure and all of those things. But the way he moves in our lives doesn't always fit this preconceived notion of how he should. God reveals himself in obscurity. He completely bypasses the great palaces and the temples and the religious leaders and appears to humble everyday people like you and me. That's the God of the Bible. We don't have to search very hard to think of examples of that. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Moses was nobody, tending to flocks out in uh, Midian. He's just tending to, to herds, and God appears to him in a burning bush. God is pleased to reveal his presence and his power in obscure ways. Jesus' birth narrative is itself a theology of mystery. It's mysterious. It reveals something to us about the very character of God that we just will never be able to figure him out. We can know God truly, but we can't know him fully, and we can't put God in a box, and at some point we have to be comfortable with that. We have to be comfortable with the fact that God is a mystery still to us. God delights to make himself known, not in big and famous ways, but through the obscure, through the mysterious. And he works in that way in our lives too, mysteriously. He speaks through some small events to us personally. And we learn of his ways through mundane experiences or painful circumstances. We'd rather learn of God in some glorious, majestic appearing but instead he speaks to us 
often through still small voices, through the mundane, through the ordinary. That's how God moves. And while the world says, give me proof, some visible sign of God's existence, and then I'll believe, God says, nah. I won't be told what to do. I'll show up when and where and to whom I please. No thanks. Thanks for the offer, but no thanks. And as laughable as it might have seemed to people in the first century that God would reveal himself to poor shepherds, it's equally laughable today to many that God would reveal himself to puny people like you and me, but he does through prayer, through ordinary means, through scripture, through the elements of bread and wine, God reveals himself. Through the communion of his people together when we're gathered, that's how God reveals himself, through these ordinary means of his grace, of God's people living their lives, coming together humbly in prayer, reading scripture, without a whole lot of fanfare, without lots of bells and whistles. That's how God is pleased to reveal himself. And then finally... God wants us to see that we don't wait in vain. In verses 22 through 40 that we just read, we're told that Mary and Joseph take their child to the temple because according to the law of Moses, she has to be purified and the child has to be dedicated to God as holy, as the firstborn. And when they get there, there are these two waiters, these two watchers, two people who are waiting on God. A man named Simeon and a woman named Anna, a woman who's been uh, a widow for many, many years. She's 84 years old. And when they get there, the first person they see is Simeon, and Simeon, this man, has been waiting who knows how long, years, maybe decades, for what they call the consolation of Israel, God to redeem and save and restore his people. He takes the child in his arms, recognizes Jesus for who he is, And this is what he says in verse 30. Now I can die in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all your peoples. Now I can die in peace. Actually, I sort of felt that way driving in with the snow this morning because it's my first white Christmas. But now I said, now I can die in peace to my wife. He says, now I can die in peace. That which I've been waiting for for all these years, the consolation of Israel, I finally see it. This waiter, this watcher, this person who's been waiting for God to reveal himself, his Messiah. For years he's been watching and waiting and keeping hope alive. And no sooner does he walk away than we're greeted by Anna, this 84-year-old widow, who's also waited for the redemption of God's people. And it's interesting that there's this widow, and you'd think it would be easy for her to be bitter about her life's circumstance and the difficulty of her situation. But we're told that she never left the temple, but worshiped there night and day, fasting and praying, until the moment that Joseph and Mary came up to her with the baby Jesus, verse 38. She could have been bitter. 
Her life didn't go like she wanted. Her husband had died many, many, many years ago, but she perseveres. She waits in the temple night and day, praying and worshiping and fasting until that day that the child shows up. And like these two people, like Simeon and like Anna, in this life, we wait. We wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We wait for God to answer our prayers. We wait for him to change difficult circumstances. We wait for him to provide something we need. We wait for God. We wait to hear from him. We wait to see his hand moving in our lives. We wait. And we're always tempted, I'm sure like Simeon and Anna at some points, we're always tempted to give up on God. We're tempted to stop waiting. We're tempted to say, God didn't show up. There's no use waiting around anymore and go about our way. But you know, God doesn't give up on us. He perseveres with us. He waits on us to be faithful. He endures with us patiently. As a loving father, God never gives up on us. Tomorrow morning after you've shared presents and laughed and somebody in the house who's tasked with the job of going around and gathering up all the shiny bundles of wrapping paper in a big trash bag. That was my dad, now that's me. I'm the guy who has to do that now. But after that's all over, after you've gathered all the trash and exchanged gifts, maybe read the Christmas story again here in Luke chapter two, the whole chapter. Just stop for a moment. Stop your busy life for a moment and just read through it. Take a moment to honor this event, honor this reality of God coming into the world. All the long-awaited expectation and hope of a Savior and a Messiah, it actually already happened. And recognize that you're not the only one waiting, that others have waited also, and that God is always faithful to his promises. And be reminded that God is good and God is faithful. And though our waiting isn't always rewarded in big and famous and fancy ways, God does reward our waiting, our humility, our perseverance in obscure and mundane things. But he does it often in small ways, just like this story. Let's pray.